Hello everybody, welcome to the Boxing Science Podcast. This is episode 5 and this is all about the return to boxing training post-lockdown. In a previous episode, we shared the strategies that boxers and coaches should be employing in order to stay fit and adapt around having limited facilities during lockdown. However, we're now entering a new phase of where we might be getting back to the boxing gyms, hopefully sooner rather than later. With this, we need to be able to adapt our training methods to prepare our bodies and our mindset ready to go into the hard vigours of training camp. You know, the hard bag and pad sessions with a boxing coach. Sparring is going to be a huge challenge, especially if you haven't sparred in a while. You need to prepare your body so we're optimising performance and reducing the likelihood of injury. In this special feature episode, myself and Dr Alan Ruddock are being interviewed by sports journalist Sarah Shepherd. Sarah Shepherd works for theathletic.co.uk. This is a website dedicated to uh, sports across uh, football and boxing. And they give in-depth sports stories that you won't find anywhere else. So if you're interested in this, go check out their website, theathletic.co.uk. If you're not a subscriber to our podcast yet, please hit the subscribe button and go check out our previous episodes. We've got uh, the science behind boxing, we've got strength training, we've got interviews, and we've got loads of different uh, content for you already on our podcast. We're only about five or six weeks in. And the main thing that you need to go and check out is our Q&A sessions because we cover a huge range of different topics around boxing, strength conditioning and nutrition. So let's get on with the interview with Sarah Shepherd, myself and Dr. Alan Ruddock. The first kind of era I guess I wanted to touch on is, is obviously this period. Um, boxers are sort of used to having time off between camps, but this is different for a number of reasons. You know, they don't know how long they're going to be off, when they're going to be fighting again. They've got limited access to facilities. Do you think all of that together will impact on, on how long it will take them to get back into sort of fighting shape, you know, when the time does come that they're looking to get back in the ring. Yeah, absolutely. So when we talk about a, a training camp, we break it down into about three or four different blocks. Uh, if we if we shorten that answer down to two blocks, we have a, a general preparation uh, preparation phase, then a specific training uh, preparation phase. And in that general preparation phase, that's when they're building up their fitness, they're building up their, their rounds of pads and bag work. And from the strength and conditioning side, this is where we can really start pushing them in their strength work, in their running, in their condition. We get the really hard sessions out of the way. And then when they go into a specific training phase, that's when they start up in the sparring. Uh, that's when they... Um, maybe try and like kind of taper off some of their strength conditioning work we're trying to adapt around uh, their boxing training because we're not wanting to have a negative impact on that and these phases uh, depend on how long that training camp is so let's say it's a 10-week camp we do about four weeks of general preparation and then six weeks of solid sparring so we're talking about this lockdown this lockdown has been seven, eight weeks, and it's looking like it's going to be another eight weeks before like any kind of gym opens. I'm not sure whether boxing is going to come back. 
So we're talking about 16 solid weeks away from the boxing gym. Now we can do loads of strength and conditioning, we can build up their fitness, but nothing is going to replicate their sparring. So to, in order to get that fitness back, that technique, that timing, that gym aware, that ring awareness, it's going to take them, normally it takes them six weeks, but if they've been away from the boxing gym for 16 weeks, then it's going to take them a little bit longer. So we've got to be mindful of that. We can think, right, this is a great opportunity because they're not boxing as much. We can really push them on their strength and conditioning. But we've got to think about the long-term game of when they return back to, to boxing training. They're going to have another eight, six to eight weeks of training on top of that. You know, we're at high risk of overreaching, overtraining, getting injured, get, being fatigued. This is something that we don't want, especially when there's going to be very limited opportunities to fight this year. So we want to try and optimise their fitness as much as possible. So when they're coming back into camp as well, that's a really dangerous time. Because you can, you can imagine these guys have been restricted for there's going to be at least 16 weeks now. The coaches of uh, uh you know one want to get back in and, and get their guys ready and firing as well so the, there's a real risk of doing too much in the early weeks as well that you could then overload your boxer and that could cause an injury in the in the in the next couple couple of weeks and that could set you back even further so it's really important that the process is managed not just now in lockdown but also on that return as well so the athletes aren't doing too much when they return from this lockdown so they're not being pushed too hard because knowing what we know that that's there's a real strong risk of that happening and so that process has to be managed carefully as possible sad on that alan um we have one boxer that looks pretty much likely to to be competing soon so we're really focusing on his training and he's we've kind of like gone into three different blocks we've, we've gone first block was like the adapting around lockdown making sure psychologically it's all right and adapting to that situation staying motivated just keep his body ticking over so a lot of the sessions have been quite varied working on different things trying to learn some new skills as well and then we've got to think about phase two, which is getting ready to go back into the boxing gym. Then phase three, what is that training schedule going to look like when they go back? And, you know, it's wanting to get fit and as sharp in a very short amount of time. At the moment, we're in that phase two where we're thinking, right, we've got to be building him hope, ready to go back into boxing training. So something that we do is very simple for boxing science. We take down their training loads, which is... The amount of minutes that their session goes and an RP, so a rate of perceived exertion, this is a scale of one to 10. One being you sat at home watching Netflix, 10 being um, you're going all out, trying to sprint, you're late for work or anything like that, or in a really hard uh, boxing session. So we, we, have that, we have that scale and that creates training load. And I've done a little analysis with this boxer and he's actually work, even though he feels like he's still training hard, he's working at 50% of what he normally does 
when he's in the boxing gym, when he's doing his sparring and his hard pad sessions with his boxing coach. So if he was going to go into the gym next week, he'd have a 100% increase in his training load. And we found with our research that if your training load increases over 20%, you're more at risk of injury, you're more at risk of fatigue, you're more at risk of overreaching as well. And that's something that we don't want because, like we said, we need to maximise this training block when they return back to training. So what we're doing now, we've taken down that load and we're steadily building him up week by week and 20% increases. So mm. when he goes back to the boxing gym, he's ready to hit the ground running. Mm. And there's also another factor. There's also another factor that we haven't mentioned in that they're now they're in um, lockdown. There's not like like Danny just mentioned, um, this particular boxer is fifty percent of training load. That means he's only getting he's he's burning fifty percent less of the calories that he would normally do. And so when they get back in the gym, they've still got to make weight and they're still gonna they're gonna be after in a be in a energy deficit. And depending on how much weight they've got to lose, that that will dictate the magnitude of the, the energy deficit that they will need to be in. So not only have they got to control the training process, they've also got to very carefully manage that decrease in weight to make sure they're on target to meet their weight. Because if they don't make their weight and they don't do it safely, then all that hard work and all that careful management and preparation that's been done during lockdown and the transition back into the gym will all be unraveled in the final week and so it's also really important that we factor in those nutritional demands nutritional constraints that uh, that the guys are, are under so there are the, a bo- there's uh, boxing's a multifaceted sport um, most sports don't have to take into account nutritional demands as well of losing weight unless you're in another combat sport. So not only have they got their technical, tactical uh, and sparring sessions to consider and their S&C, the, the strength work, the mobility, the, the conditioning, they've also got to factor into nutrition as well and the effect that nutrition can have on uh, energy, on mood, on consistency of training, on the hormones, uh, and all these different factors. So it's it's a really complex situation that they are finding themselves in. Um, and it has to be managed carefully, like Danny says. And, and we try and take and quantify as much information as possible to make those informed decisions. Um, obviously, there's a lot to dig into there. But I guess, firstly, what, what sort of training have the boxers that you guys speak to been able to do in lockdown? Like... Is it mostly sort of running, cycling, weights, heavy bag? And, and how closely are you able to manage those sessions? Like, are you giving them quite specific programs? Depends on what kind of facilities that they've got. Um, boxer that we work with, Jordan Gill, he's, he's gone and bought a load of kit. So he's been able to do more or less the same amount of work that he'd normally do in the strength and conditioning gym. Uh, I've been doing like FaceTime sessions with him and then just been giving him his running sessions and he's giving me feedback. You know, the use of technology, you know, like today we're on Zoom, a lot of people are adapting towards around the the current situation and finding new ways of working. 
with boxing science, we have our athletes all over the place. Like we have some in Sheffield and then some go home. Jordan's based in Chatteris. We've had boxers in Liverpool and Leeds. And sometimes we're not able to go to every single session. So it's important that we use technology to help monitor their progress. So we use heart rate monitors. So this can, when you're running outside, this gives GPS data and heart rate data so we can see how fast they're running on these intervals. And also we can see the amount of time that they're spending in the red zone. The red zone is 90% maximum heart rate. And this is where boxers spend most of their time when they're competing, when they're training, and when they're sparring as well. So it's important that we replicate that in their running sessions. In the running sessions, we've been making sure that we're adapting our high intensity interval training protocols that is normally performed on a treadmill, on a, on a woodway curve or a normal motorized treadmill where we give them target speeds. However, it's quite difficult to try and adapt this to the outdoors because yeah. it's hard to find the right pacing. So we've been doing more simpler runs that we normally do, such as like four minutes on, two minutes off. And we give them a target of anywhere between 900 meters to 1,100 meters. And this gives them like a target speed of anywhere between 14.5 and 17.5 um, kilometers an hour. This is probably what we'd give them normally on a treadmill. So just converting that speed into distance has been one of the key challenges. And then with the rest of them that haven't got access to equipment and facilities, we've been putting loads of stuff on our YouTube channel, uh, Boxing Science YouTube channel and on Instagram as well. And I've been just referring them to these kind of workouts. Training a little bit like myself, I've, you know, to keep myself motivated, every, no one session has looked the same. And it's a little bit like what we're saying about the boxer earlier when we're working three different phases. The first phase being keeping them kind of psychologically switched on and motivated. A lot of them are still in a lot of most of the boxers will still be in that phase because it's not like football and other sports where there's loads of money interjected with TV deals. There's only certain promoters that have them TV deals, so there's not a lot of boxers that are going to be competing mm. until very later this year. So it's just about giving them that variety to keep changing things up. Mm. Uh, to keep their minds fresh, to keep them motivated, to keep training. Because if you give them a set structure every single day, every single week, they're more likely to get bored of training, low motivation and not keep that up. So I think variation has been the key and just adapting around what kind of facilities and equipment that they've got. Some do body weight exercises, some have got some weights and some bands. And we're just finding different ways to try and challenge them and keep they're mentally engaged. And what, like you said, um, this boxer is, is his load is 50% of what it normally is. What, what are the aspects of fitness that you lose quickest in a period of, of reduced training? Um, you know, is it like strength and power and speed or, or is it endurance? Like, do we know which aspects generally disappear the quickest? Yeah, fit, fitness generally decreases the, the quickest, but it, it also depends on the, the type of, of athlete you are. If you've got a well-established history of conditioning, then uh, rather than, than strength, 
then it'll be strength and it'll be mobility and the skill to apply force in the right way that will decrease first. Whereas if you've got a, a, a training history that's more endurance-based, athletes will tend to uh, ret retain that quality and that endurance quality because they have the physiological structures um, in place. They also have, and it is true, there is a muscle memory. They, they also have the ability to um, activate the mechanisms that cause those underpinning adaptations even when they're doing a reduced level of training so typically they'll always revert back to their strengths um, so if their strength is endurance then their body will adapt naturally genetically um, back to that endurance if they're more explosive then they'll retain those and, and lose conditioning but what what you'll find in the in the general scientific literature is that conditioning generally does go first and then strength is retained for a little bit longer but it, it does depend on how strong you are to start with and how you can apply that force in the way that you want to apply the force in the direction and the, the timing um so yeah it, it just it just depends as well like and like and, and like say trying to minimize those uh, re reductions dependent upon the athlete's strengths and weaknesses is, is what we do. We always work on an individual basis. And so each program that, that we will give an athlete will be tailored to them specifically and nobody else. And it will be centered around, like Danny says, what constraints they have in, in terms of equipment, time, space, um, but also their, their strengths and super strengths and, and areas for development as well. The key thing with that as well, we're talking about um, strength and retaining strength. The one thing that they won't be able to overload as much is their core muscle mass and their trunk mass um, and trunk strength and stability. So what we found with our research is that the biggest physical contributor to a punch is the amount of core muscle mass that you have. This mm. is absolute and relative, so pound for pound. So in a normal training camp, we try and either increase pound for pound muscle mass of the core or try and retain it as much as possible when we're making weight. Now, we normally do this through compound lifts. So we'll use heavy trap bar deadlifts, heavy squats. This is the best way to build up that trunk mass. But even though some boxers have access to a load of weights, they still can't replicate the amount of load that they'll be lifting when they're doing the strength and conditioning sessions with myself at Boxing Science. So we've got to have that in mind because we want to, one, contribute to the punch as much as possible. So we're wanting to keep retain that core mass, but also that increase in training load will be big no matter how much we do. So they're going to be at more risk of injury, so we need to make them as robust as possible. So this is why we're trying to target um, a maintenance of core muscle mass. We can't achieve this through compound lifts but we can achieve it through variations of of the squat of the deadlift to challenge the core a little bit more but also adding more core exercises more core endurance exercises so the lads aren't uh, the boxers aren't thanking me for this but i'm doing like some extra long core holds whether that's a plank side plank uh, a, a supine core iso hold as well basically just trying to overload the core in different ways and another thing is is to mobility um they're going to be sat down a lot more mm. 
So they're going to be tightening their shoulders, tightening their hips. And this is increasing that likelihood of injury and making them stiff and not being able to flow as well when they're back in the boxing gym with, with their boxing coach. So mobility is a massive thing. So we're, we're giving them uh, some body weight exercises to challenge the hip mobility, shoulder mobility, get them uh, being able to rotate as well. It's just what we normally do in, the, in a normal kind of boxing science strength conditioning session, but it's just adapted around these, um, you know, doing a little bit more mobility, doing a little bit more core to work around these limitations of lockdown. And you kind of touched on, on it earlier, but in terms of the fact that they won't have been able to spar for such a long time, mm-hmm. are, there, are there certain um, physical things that they gain from sparring that, that you just you can't replicate you know, with fitness or conditioning work? Well, it's the amount of time that they do in the red zone is, is massive. So if you're going to do a, a sparring session of, of 30 minutes, Mm. Um, so sorry, take like, like 10 rounds to do 30 minutes of action uh, the boxer is likely to hit around about anywhere between 25 and 27 minutes in the red zone and wow. you, can't, you, can't, you can't do that when you're uh, running uh, either through psychology or through fatigue so that's a massive amount of fitness and plus it's, it's, it's sports specific fitness you see like a footballer they, when the footballers probably fittest when they're coming back from injury because they're doing so many kind of running intervals, they're doing so much strength conditioning to get back, but still they need to play in the reserves and get that uh, match-specific fitness up there because there's nothing like it and nothing can replicate it. So it's massive for, for physical fitness um, as well. Timing, patience, being able to put six seven shot combinations together and being able to recover from that there's not many things that can um can replicate sparring especially like when you're getting hit yourself because mm. that's it that zaps your energy you know getting hit in the stomach getting hit in the head um you know we can't make up a run that can do that <laughs> and i think alan would be willing to do that because i think he'd be running away from the boxes at least he'll be able to run away i'm not fast enough <laughs> and don't forget there's the and don't forget there's the um there's another consideration that you've got to make around neuromuscular function and the rate of force development as well and in the the plane of movement so we can we can train how quickly our boxers produce force and we usually do that with with deadlifts and squats and and jumps and things like that but when our guys are, are boxing and they're sparring, they're producing high levels of force very, very quickly. A punch is delivered in under 200 milliseconds. And the amount of force that they have to generate in that short space of time is very, very diff- difficult to replicate in the gym. And so that's why sparring is not only crucial from a conditioning perspective, but also from a neuromuscular perspective as well. And when you have those neuromuscular demands that you're placing on the muscle, it also then influences the physiological demands. So you're asking the muscle to repeatedly produce high forces, either in attack or defense. And that is then placing a strain on the cardiovascular system, but also perceptually, psychologically as well. So all, all these things are linked and, and, and integrated 
Now we can do our best in the lab to isolate each component. We can work on rate of force development in the gym, fine. We can work on conditioning on a treadmill, fine. We can do some psychology work with them, absolutely fine. But what we can't do is integrate all those three elements and throw them all into the mix and challenge the, the boxes in the way that requires uh, or the, the way that the, the demands are so specific as inspiring. So it's not just like isolating and just picking those those things out. It's being able to to integrate them under pressure, you know, um, when you're tired, when you're fatigued, um, and you know when you're trying not to get hit on the on the other end. Especially if you especially if you, you it's a this, a really tough sparring session, or you you know you're near the end of the end of the camp, your energy's low. You might be rotating sparring partners as well. So each time you've got someone in fresh, you, you, you can't replicate that. And, and, and so those are the, 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 the biggest things that, that the boxers are missing from, from sparring at, and being in lockdown. If you've got a, a heavy bag or someone holding pads for you, that's, it's still not quite the same, is it? Because they're not hitting you back. <laughs> yeah. and, and it's the different things associated, uh, like Alan said, about defensive movements. You're moving around the ring, you're, you're having to mentally switch on. Sometimes on the heavy bag, you might, um, you know, you, you might just be like going through the motions, mm-hmm. I'd be listening to some music to get yourself through it. When you're sparring, you've got to be switched on. So it's, it's all about your mental endurance as well as your physical endurance. And there's other things as well that you put, some, some people might not see your feints, your footwork, you're moving in and out of range. These are things that can really tax you when, when you're sparring. You know, if you if anybody is listening to this and they're shadow boxing in the garden, you try and move your feet after every single combination that you throw, and that session becomes a lot harder. So mm-hmm. imagine doing that and actually sparring at the same time. So yeah, it's it's there's nothing nothing like sparring. That's why we always go around the question, well, we don't go around the question, but we never give anybody a straight answer of how can you get 12 rounds fit? Because we target, we target physiological adaptations. We look at general fitness that can be transferred into specific situations. There's nothing that can get you 12 round fit on a treadmill, on a curve, except from going and, um, and doing your sparring. What we do, we try and unlock somebody's potential physical potential to then transfer that into their boxing performance and to help them adapt to their sparring, be able to go harder in their sparring, but there's nothing that can really replicate sparring for boxing uh, specific fitness. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, that reminded me as well that the subtleties of high performance as well. So the, the higher performers will be able to use very subtle feints They'll be able to use very subtle footwork. All you got to do is look at Lomachenko, um, and the, and the way that they they use that technical ability and that ring craftsmanship, and that that takes time to put that into practice and and learn, um, and you know people like um, Mayweather, Lomachenko. Um, even Tyson Fury to an extent, absolutely just world class in fainting, setting traps, footwork, 
and they're not they're not going to get that from from you know being in lockdown and not being able to spar so this is quite a general question and it probably the answer is probably it depends but um how you know how many weeks of sparring would a fighter need will a fighter need um before you would want them to get back in the ring like what's the sort of minimum they would need i think i think that's a coach's coach's decision really you've got to assess where their boxer is when they first walk into the gym and then they've got to take it very very slowly um I mean, usually, like Danny mentioned earlier, it would be six weeks. Now, ideally, you you would probably want a a little longer than that, um, and extend that, maybe up to maybe up to to ten weeks. But you can't have the same volume of sparring over ten weeks as you would six weeks, because that's that six weeks is is really really demanding. Now you can't extend that over to ten weeks. And expect the boxers to perform in the same way and cope with those demands in the same way. So it's got to be protracted. The volume's got to be increased slowly and gradually. Um, that's my opinion, but it's it, it will come down to the coaches' own coaching philosophy, their their perspectives, how they feel their their boxers is is looking right now. Um, other things like conditions of their of their hand. Um, you know, and that that's a really underappreciated point of a of a boxer's fitness is the how um what what the the bone quality like is in their hands has their have, have their hands fully repaired because they're not taking impacts like say in sparring or they're not on the heavy bag they may they may have some bone degeneration. Um, because they're not getting that impact in the hand. And that's another thing that they might have to consider as well, is just not the physical characteristics, but also um, the osteo characteristics of, of the hands and the wrists and even the elbows as well, Danny, with, with, with loads through the tendons and, and shoulders and, and things like that. So it's, that's a, it's, a, it's a really difficult question to answer. And like I say, it does depend on the particular particular athlete but then there are lots of different considerations to make so that those what you just mentioned about the tendons in the in the and bone in their hands and the elbows etc are you saying that that through this period they'll have been almost like detrained i suppose so they'll have to the the resistance when they go back into punching things will have to be built up again yeah they'll almost been been softened yeah the key a key thing is talking about like building up that sparring volume is how many shots have they missed over the past eight weeks so when you're on the pads when you're on the bags it's very easy to hit the bags and the pads you're hitting around about anywhere between 80 and 100 percent of the time you're hitting the target now when you go back into sparring you're probably only going to be hitting the target 30 percent of the time and yeah, we decelerate through shadow boxing, but it's a, we're already mentally preparing ourselves to decelerate when we're shadow boxing. But when we go back into sparring, you, you're trying to hit that opponent as hard as you can. And if you miss, you're putting a, a load of uh, like kind of force and tension through your muscles and through your tendons. And 
this will this can end up being like when you're not being used to it for so long this can result in injury inflammation and soreness but how can we prepare for that we can do it through strength training as much as we can but uh, and we can do it through shadow boxing but how much can uh, can we prepare that the amount of kind of force and tension that goes through our arms when we're actually missing a shot through when we're putting maximum force and intent into it that there isn't anything that we can really replicate only thing that we can do is try and limit that effect and, and limit the amount of risk that's associated with that so we'll do the stretching and make sure that they're warming up uh, correctly make sure that they're cooling down get the right recovery methods in place and then with the sparring loads that's gradually increasing as well so the amount of decelerations doesn't go suddenly from zero to a hundred in one session and then 200 in the next session we're kind of building that up very slowly so it's not only about the the fitness and the sharpness but it's also preparing your body in the right way and, and making your body less risk to injury I guess the, the issue in, in this particular situation is going to be that there's going to be a real pressure on fighters to get ready quicker because the ones who get ready the quickest, you know, will have that reward of being able to get a fight first. So there's going to be a real pressure on trainers, isn't there, to say, right, we'll just do a four-week camp. Yeah, and whoever's, whoever's first will get the most amount of coverage we've received yeah. on the UFC yeah weekend 795,000 pay-per-views which yeah. is absolutely massive yeah UFC and it's because people are deprived of sports mm-hmm. so the the next boxing show or the first few boxing shows are going to be massive mm-hmm. massive for profile and obviously these boxers if they haven't got part-time jobs or even able to work at the moment the only way of making a living it's through boxing. Most of my fighters, uh, sorry, most of the fighters that I work with haven't fought this year. Mm. So they, they're needing to find a way to, to make money. Through fighting, obviously, they get money through sponsorships, but businesses will be like, right, why are we sponsoring this guy if he's not making us, uh, giving us any exposure? So they're needing to try and get these fights in as soon as they can. So let's say if fights to start happening in July and August our boxers wanting to get on them shows so then they can not only box as soon as possible but then they can box again because once they box once they're back to the back of the queue and then they have to wait for their opportunity again so the sooner that they box the more chance they're going to be boxing later on in the year as well so yeah. let's, let's not forget as well that um, the coaches need to earn money as well and they they earn their money through through coaching. So when the boxer gets paid, the coach gets paid. Mm. So there's the the dual interest there in um, getting a a boxer um, prepared as soon as as soon as possible. But there's also the risk of a coach pushing a boxer too much too soon to get them out. So they can both get paid mm. to the detriment in the long term. So it's 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 real delicate balancing act for for both of them just having to take everything in consideration like we said about building up that volume load making sure that 
we're notifying a lot, like taking notice of the risks and, and managing stuff around that to make sure that we're reducing the likelihood of injury and then we're helping boost performance at the same time. I don't know how much sort of testing you guys do, but if you, if you were involved with a boxer who's in a shorter camp, are there certain things that you would be mindful of, I guess, either keeping an eye on or, or testing for to make sure that a fighter isn't overtraining or putting themselves at, at risk of injury? I don't, in a shorter camp, we, we probably wouldn't do the full battery of tests that we normally do. Um, the, the full battery of tests is quite demanding. Um, there's a lot of different exercises uh, in there. What we are doing now, and we do the same throughout any, any camp, is every testing session, every training session becomes testing because we're trying to quantify so many training variables. So for example, um, we know that uh, in week one, running on a treadmill at 15 kilometers per hour, it lists a heart rate of 90% heart rate max. Two weeks later, we know that running at 16 kilometers per hour produces a heart rate of 90% heart rate max and therefore we can make the the assumption that there's been some cardiorespiratory adaptations there and our boxers are, are fitter so from a very basic perspective quantifying training uh, intensity um, the physio physiological responses from a basic point of view even from how hard was that even from our perspective looking at them thinking are you in control How's that foot landing? How's that hip moving? What's your shoulders like? What's your facial expression? What's your breathing like? Those are the type of in intuitive um, coach's eye kind of um, things you, you would be aware of as well as the, the quantifiable aspects. Um, obviously, we can't test everything that we would like to test, but we, we try not to waste uh, any exercise, every exercise is there for a purpose. And if we can quantify something, whether that's barbell speed, velocity, whether it's heart rate, whether it's lactate, we will do so. But we will only do so if we can use that information to inform our, our practice and whether an athlete is adapting to a programme. The key thing that we're monitoring at the moment in terms of like making sure that an athlete isn't overreaching, overtraining, is that boxing training load is a conditioning training load as well and what that looks from a, a global point of view, how they add up to total amount of training load. And then their relationship with training load and session day wellness. Mm. So we take, we take our athletes through a questionnaire, a scale of one to five on their energy levels, their muscular soreness, their sleep quality and their readiness to train. And from this, we can uh, get an understanding of how that athlete is, how uh, from a day to day and a week by week basis. So if we're hitting all twos and all ones, we know that that athlete is becoming a little bit overreached, a little bit fatigued. We might need to hold back from that. So we need to make sure that we're keeping an eye on that. Also, is their body mass. So if they're making weight and they're trying to lose a lot of weight in a short amount of time, making sure that weight is, is nice and steady, that they're hitting their daily and their weekly targets. We're not wanting to fluctuate too much because we've seen that if a boxer 
loses like let's say a kilo or two pounds in in just one day because that's what they can lose uh, just through water retention and and um, glycogen manipulation as well they they're likely the next day to score a low session day wellness so if they're crashing off the weight in, in just one week let's say if they from total week they lose three kilos by the end of the week their session day wellness is like ones and twos there's something that we need to avoid so we need to make sure that there's a proper nutritional strategy in place to make sure that they're not crashing off the weight too much too soon and it's trying to be as a linear process as possible mm. that um the weight making side of it is is really interesting um because obviously you obviously you don't want them to to get too far away from their fighting weight in this period but for them mentally it must be really difficult because they don't they're likely not to be back in the ring for a while so you know how do you keep yourself motivated i guess to stick that closely to your your fighting weight just in case you get you know a fight come up at late notice well but, yeah, we um, we give them a percentage target of right. where we know how far they need to be away from their uh, fighting weight. This can be anywhere between eight and twelve percent, and we know that an athlete can be like four weeks out at ten percent above their um, their fighting weight. So we try try and give them that. If they're fifteen percent, there's no way of fighting. If there's ten percent that's all right. If it's 8%, that's fantastic. So it's giving yourself the best possible opportunity yeah. to be able to, to, to make weight. So they need to understand where they need to be four weeks out. So whether that's a featherweight boxer or a light heavyweight boxer, they've got like their weight targets of where they need to be four weeks out. And that's kind of the conversation that I've had with professional boxers that where do you want to be four weeks out? That's what we need to work towards because mm. that's when the lockdown's lifted, that's the amount of time that you might have before a fight. You can't be resting on your laurels and think, oh, I'll be all right when I, um, you know, I'm not going to be fighting for ages. If you get that call four weeks out and you're 15% above your body weight, it's, it's going to be very hard for you to turn that round and be able to perform to the best of your abilities and to make that weight safely as well. So that's the kind of motivation that we're giving athletes. Some athletes that are probably not going to be fighting anytime soon, you know, tell them like, right, this is probably where your weight should be, but don't be too hard on yourself. Have, have a little treat here and there. Um, make sure that's a healthy treat. You're not just going and doing loads of sugar, doing loads of chocolate, not drinking excessively. You know, have a nice meal and mainly eat healthy, manage your calories as best as you can um, because it is, a, it is a massive thing, dieting. It's psychologically tough. Um, so we're, we're just, we're, we're adapting to each situation, uh, giving them targets and everything like that. But it is, it is you know, it's easier said than done. Mm. Uh, it has to come uh, from within, uh, from the athlete, I suppose. Yeah. The good thing is that they've had seven or eight eight weeks now of not being on a yo-yo, so yeah. not excessively 
gaining weight, or at least they sh they shouldn't be. The pressure's off their, them having to make weight. The pressure's are also off them having to cram in and enjoy as much food as possible whilst they're off camp. And hopefully now they've reached some kind of baseline normality where they should be able to sustain that target body weight that they need to be at and everything should be balanced every from from a hormonal perspective um from a bone density perspective for example um and it could provide them with a if they're smart with it a, a good platform to be able to make weight safely when they do return to the ring that's a that's a fantastic point i i totally forgot that that's actually what i've give callum uh because uh Callum Beardo is wanting to is a two and a professional fighter and he's relatively short for his weight, uh, light heavyweight. Um but we're wanting him to eventually come down to super middleweight and I've given him the, the target of getting to around about eighty two, eighty three kilos and to be walking around at that for so long. But because mm -hmm of training camps with the pressures of, um, you know, sparring and training effectively. It's been hard for him to, to get down to that, get down to that weight and do it, doing it without like excessive fatigue or illness or anything like that. And also in a really short time frame. So his two fights have come at like 82, 83 kilos making weight. And then obviously it goes away eats what he wants, drinks what he wants, and then he comes back to the gym and he's 90 kilos again and it's, it's getting that kind of, like, like saying, getting out of that yo-yo phase with him. So I've said to him, right, this is a perfect opportunity for you to steadily chip down that weight and to be sitting at that at like around about 83, 82 kilos. So then that gives you a better opportunity in training camp to hit, 70 like what it'd be hitting 76 kilos uh when you lose weight in a very short amount of time this absolutely kills your metabolism uh but if you take it off very steadily your, your metabolism your resting metabolic rate uh maintains more so mm. this is but with boxers because they are losing weight in a very short amount of time they, their metabolism drops and then they go out and binge again and yeah. then they're more prone to be putting that weight back on. So yeah. like Alan said, it's a fantastic opportunity for them to, to try and stabilise that. Yeah. Is that basically like uh, establishing a new sort of set point for their bodies? Yeah. Yeah. So we, we found that the best... The best kind of resting metabolic rate that we've seen is Anthony Fowler. Um, he spent all of his time at GB boxing within five percent of his body mass. Yeah. We're just saying a good target for boxers, professional boxers, is to be ten percent out. So his his body up, up to being about 26, 27 years old has been used to being five percent within his weight and not having to crash it off. So that's why, like when you know people see him on the scales, he's looking great shape, he's absolutely massive for the weight, mm. they're going, 
Oh, oh, he's drained it the way. In fact, it is the one that you have to do the least amount of nutritional strategies for because he's so close to the weight all year round. Mm. Um, and that's because he's just stayed so close to his weight. He's, he's maintained that uh, kind of that uh, standard level for all the way through his career and his adult life as well. So then he starts making weight relatively easy. Mm. And that's because his his resting metabolic rate has adapted to burn off to to be more efficient. Is that right? Well, it's not. It's 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 being being maintained. Whereas, uh, yeah, what you're saying is 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 it's more efficient. But boxers' metabolic rate can be um, affected by ex- like extreme diets. Mm. So it's not increasing his metabolic rate compared to what he normally is. Yeah, it, it's it's not being crashed every every single uh, camp. Yeah. So we've had boxers that just going yo-yo all the time, and when they get down to being very close to the weight, the drop off in their resting metabolic rate is astounding. Right. And and makes the weight making process a lot harder, not only mm-hmm. for them themselves, but the the uh, the nutritionists as well. They've got to adapt the calories. And you're thinking about a boxer that is getting towards that back end of camp, they're sparring 10, 12 rounds, and they're having to be on less calories than they were at the start of camp. Mm. So, yeah, it, it makes it a lot tougher when boxers are just yo-yoing. So, like I said, like Alan said, it's a perfect opportunity to try and reverse that, try and sit around your weight for a longer amount of time, and then that will help uh, boost your resting metabolic rate. I guess it, there's also a chance that during this period, some boxers might put on weight that is is muscle because they're eating, they might be eating well. They're you know doing some good training, but either even if it's body weight training, you can still put on muscle. Yeah, is that is that harder to work with when they come back into camp if the weight they've put on is muscle? Um, not from a, a strength training point of view because they're going to be a lot stronger. Uh, but obviously, from making weight and boxing point of view, this is something that we don't want to see. Um, so we're, we're limiting the amount of reps that they're doing. Um, we're making sure that they're not in as much of a, a calorie, um, a po- sorry, a positive uh, calorie balance, so they're able to put on that muscle mass. And also, we've been smart of where the reps are. So we're not doing it like I did a post the other week about how boxers need to be careful doing body weight circuits, doing loads of press-ups because the amount of muscle mass that they're putting on, if, if they are going to put on muscle mass, we'd rather be in their lower body mm. and their core because we know that this has a positive con- uh, correlation with punching force. Mm. However, if they're doing a load of press-ups, a load of pull-ups, they're putting it all up on their upper body, putting it on their arms, they're going to be stiff. And also, they're going to be putting on muscle mass on their arms, which makes their arms heavier, so they're not able to project that fist as fast towards the target. So it's a little bit like shooting a shooting a bullet, and then and then post lockdown, you're shooting a cannonball out of the same gun, uh, and the cannonball is going to move a lot. So even though it's heavier, even though it'll hurt you in the head, the box uh, the opponent will be able to see that coming from mile off and be able to get out of the way. Whereas if you're, if you're keeping, you're reducing the amount of muscle mass 
of your upper body, keeping it on your core and your lower body, the more force that you'll be able to produce from the lower body to then transfer into the fist and the, your arms are still, you're still going to be able to flow through your upper body and fire that fist through to the, uh, through to the target fast and efficiently. Mm. One of the things, things they're also at risk at, as well as uh, hypertrophy, especially if they're in a positive energy balance, is putting on fat mass as well. So although they might increase muscle mass, they might also increase fat mass alongside that with a positive mm. energy balance. So that's something that we have to be aware of as well. Now, most athletes don't have access to a body composition analyzer at home. If they do, it's probably not going to be the most valid or reliable body composition analyzer. Um, I've got one in my bathroom. It's absolutely useless. Um, mainly because it tells me I'm 20% body fat and it's just lies. <laughs> um, so we, so you, boxers have got to be careful of changing composition, changing mass, because there's a, an accompanying increase in fat mass. If there is an increase in muscle mass without an accompanying increase in fat mass, then we're much happier with that. But then the challenge becomes, as Danny mentioned, if that muscle mass is in areas that we don't need it, how are you going to strip that away? There's, there's, there's all, the only way you can strip that muscle mass is a negative energy balance. If you're in a negative negative energy balance, then that's just going to unravel the whole training process and going to make it 10 times more difficult. I was going to ask, to lose muscle, you know, is presumably, it's not, I don't know, is it easier or is it harder than losing fat? Or is it the same? Or is it the same? No, much, much harder. Yeah. As in you have to be in a bigger deficit? Uh. Yeah, you'd have to be you have to be in a, a a bigger deficit, but also you can't really target yeah. the areas that you want to lose as well. Um, so from a performance perspective, fat anywhere um, is dead weight is detrimental performance, but muscle in in areas where you need it is really important. So in that respect, if you wanted to try and um lose muscle mass in the upper body you've then got to do a lot more work in the lower body yeah loading up to try and retain that muscle mass in the lower body in the core but in nothing upper body when athletes are when when boxers need to use their upper body yeah so it becomes really challenging yeah that brings us to the end of of this episode thanks everybody for listening if you have any questions about the topics raised during this episode, please don't hesitate to contact us either on boxing.sci at gmail.com or on Instagram at Boxing Science. And don't forget to check out our YouTube channel, which is Boxing Science, and our online membership, boxingscience.co.uk. We have a brand new section to our Boxing Science membership, Lockdown Workouts, where we share a range of different exercises and full workouts based on limited equipment or zero equipment. So no matter what access to facilities you have, there's a range of workouts that can help get you fitter, faster and stronger during lockdown. If you're regular to the Boxing Science podcast and you're liking the content so far, please leave us a review. Hopefully you're going to be leaving a five-star review because this will help us grow our podcast, which will in turn help us 
develop more content for you to share the boxing science training methods and research. Okay, guys, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you on the next episode.